Good morning, family. Our Bible reading for today is chosen from the book of Hebrews chapter 3, from verse 1 to 6. Therefore, holy brothers, you who share in the heavenly calling, consider Jesus the apostle and high priest of our confession, who was faithful to him who appointed him, just as Moses also was faithful in all God's house. For Jesus has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses, as much more glory as the builder of a house has more honor than the house itself. For every house is built by someone, but the builder of all things is God. Now Moses was faithful in all God's house as a servant, to testify to the things that were to be spoken later. But Christ is faithful over God's house as a son, and we are his house if indeed we hold fast our confidence and our boasting in our hope. Good morning, everybody. Once again, it's lovely to be with you this morning at Church at Home, Christchurch Midrand. For those who are new, my name is Martin. I'm the rector of Christchurch Midrand. It's actually Thursday afternoon, and uh, Proud, who's looking after me, has just sanitized the table and the chair. He's, uh, he's got his mask on, and uh, we're all in very good hands here. We've just been talking and praying, Royden and David, for some very serious matters. And um, those, are, those are so important that uh, we pray for these things. But I want to now pray that the Lord will perhaps clear our minds and our hearts, not that we are divorced from the world, but that God may feed us and God may draw near to us and God may comfort us and teach us so that we may be his instruments of change in this world. So we're coming to Hebrews chapter 3, verse 1 to 6. Let me first pray and ask God to meet with us by his Spirit as we read his word. So let's pray together. Father, we do pray that as we meet together, as you are present with us by your Spirit, as you speak to us through your word, that we will indeed hear the voice of God, and that you may change our lives, our hearts, our minds, so that we may be faithful servants of Christ wherever you have placed us. So will you speak to us and deal with us, and we pray this for Christ's sake. Amen. Well, if you are new with us this morning, we're continuing our study in the book of Hebrews. Uh, we're in chapter 3, verse 1 to 6. It's been read to you. Just to, just to explain that we've been working through the book of Hebrews, and um, if you've missed any of the talks, you may pick them up on uh, Church at Home or on YouTube so that you don't miss out on on uh, any of the talks because they all flow from one another. So what we do in our church uh, week by week is that we come to God's Word. We pray that God's Spirit will open up the Word to us. And we believe that as we read the Word of God, as we study the Word of God, as we are taught from the Word of God, that God through His Spirit speaks to us and we hear the voice of God. So the Bible is God's Word written. And that's why we work through it systematically, and that's what we do. 
we uh, God has given us his word in certain letters or books, and so we work through those books. We work through a number of chapters systematically so that, so that we can follow the argument that is being presented to us, and more than anything else, we want to hear the voice of God. Let me just say, that's one of the marks of a Christian. The marks of a Christian, one of the marks of a Christian is that you want to hear God's voice. And um, so you can actually check whether you're a Christian. If you've uh, neglected God's word, you haven't been able to go to life group, you haven't been able to attend church at home or come to church, you haven't, for whatever reason, haven't been reading the word of God, there should be a longing in your heart. And not just a longing, you should actually feel miserable. Because you are spiritually unfed. You are spiritually malnourished. You are spiritually weak. That's the mark of a Christian. We feed on God's word. And when we don't get God's word, we should feel weak. And we should feel miserable. So perhaps perhaps the answer to some of your struggles is that you haven't actually been sitting under the authority of God's word and listening to your father's voice. So when you listen to your father... Any good father will do two things. Positively, he'll encourage you, he'll support you, he'll help you. Uh, negatively, he may correct you. He may, uh, there's an element of training, of discipline. So the Puritan preachers used to say that it's the duty of a preacher to comfort the afflicted and to afflict the comfortable. So my prayer has been that as we come to God's word this, this morning, that for all of us, he may comfort the afflicted. We are all inflicted in one way or the other. But also that he will afflict us where we are comfortable, so that we may turn back to him. Well, let's dig in. Three questions I'm going to use to help us unpack this short passage, chapter 3, 1 to 6. It's just been read to us. Three questions. To whom is he writing? Question number two. To whom is he pointing? And then thirdly, so what must we do? So those three questions are going to help me and perhaps help you as we try to understand what God is saying to us through this, this passage. There are no side roads, so let's dig in straight away. Question number one, to whom is he writing? And there are two parts to the answer. The first is quite obvious there, chapter 3, verse 1. He's writing to Christians, to believers. He says, therefore, holy brothers... You who share in a heavenly calling. So he's talking here about the status, the identity of a Christian, that you are in Christ. He calls us holy brothers. Remember last week we looked at chapter 2, verse 11. Have a look at that. Just look back a page or so. Chapter 2, verse 11. Jesus says that he's not ashamed to call us his brothers. I mean, that's extraordinary, isn't it? Remember last week. How amazing. That Jesus should be our brother, our older brother, our perfect brother, and he's not ashamed to be our brother. Let me just, uh, let me just say a quick aside here. The word there, brothers, in the Greek, uh, it's a neuter word or a generic word, which means brothers and sisters. So he's not just talking to brothers, he's talking about brothers and sisters. It's pretty much the same in, in Hebrew. So remember Genesis chapter 1, verse 27. So God made man in the Hebrew. God made man in his image, male and female. He created them. 
So the word there in the Hebrew for man is generic. It means male and female. You have that, you have that in Afrikaans, uh, um, where where someone uh, walks in a room and says, And we all know who the yellow is. It's everyone in the room. It's a, it's a neutral word. Now, the only way to become a brother of Jesus is to become holy. Therefore, holy brothers and sisters. Now, the word holy there isn't so much talking about our practice. It's talking about our position. It's our status, our standing before God. Remember chapter 2, verse 17, that we are made holy before God because Jesus Christ was a propitiation for the sins of his people. Propitiation, remember from last week, is a wonderful Bible word. It means to set aside the wrath of God, to quench the wrath of God on our behalf. And because of that, we are forgiven in God's sight. We are holy in God's sight. So we are holy. Our status, our identity is that we are holy in God's sight because of what Christ has done for us. Our sin has been placed upon Christ and the righteousness of Christ has been placed upon us. Last week I had a funeral at uh, West Park Cemetery and um, the funeral uh, was held at the graveside because of the the circumstances we are in, um, there was a small number of family and friends, and um, normally when there's an opportunity, I try to talk to the undertaker. So after the service, when uh, people were just quietly reflecting and starting to talk to one another, uh, the undertaker was standing next to me, so I asked him his name. His name was Lawrence. And um, uh, I said, my name is Martin. He said, he's Lawrence. I said, how long have you been doing this job? He was with uh, with Dubs. He said, only a year or two. And uh, we talked about where he lived and where he came from. And uh, then I asked him, which I often ask undertakers, I say, do you believe in God? Uh, you're involved with death almost every day. And he said, yes, I do. And I said to him, are you a Christian, Lawrence? And he said, he said, he said, Pastor, I'm trying to be. And I said to him, Lawrence, you know that that's impossible. You can't try to be a Christian because you'll never be good enough. You must stop trying to be a Christian and stop, start trusting in Jesus and what he's done for you on the cross. So, we are holy, not because of what we do, we are holy because of what Christ has done for us. So, if someone was to ask me, Martin, are you holy? I would say, well, yes and no. Positionally, absolutely, I am holy because Christ has died for all my sin. When God looks down, he doesn't see Martin Morrison the sinner. No, he sees the righteousness of Christ, the perfection of Christ, the holiness of Christ. In practice, sadly, I fall short. And that's why I need to ask God to wash me and cleanse me every day. So, question here is, 
To whom is he writing? Well, he's writing to Christians, holy brothers and sisters. And he also tells us who they are. They share in a heavenly calling. So we understand as Christians that this world is not our home. We understand as Christians that our hope is not in this world. Our hope is not in the institutions of this world, in the fortunes of this world. I mean, thank God for that. I mean, how miserable you would be if your hope was in earthly things, if your hope was in this world. Now, our hope is not in an earthly kingdom. In fact, I think that's sometimes why, why old people become bitter, become cynical. Because their hope has been in this world. And it has desperately disappointed them. No, says the author of Hebrews. Holy brothers and sisters, one of the marks of a Christian is that we share in a heavenly calling. Chapter 11 says we are living presently in tents. But one day we look forward to a heavenly city whose foundations are made by God, built by God. And so our ultimate hope is not in an earthly Jerusalem, but in a heavenly Jerusalem. So a true Christian is not too attached to this world. We are to be salt and light. We are to make a difference. But we don't put our hope in this world. No, we are holy brothers and sisters. We share in a heavenly calling. We live in the light of eternity. The second part to whom he is writing is that, as we saw from, from, from last week, He's writing to genuine Christians, but Christians who are starting to lose their footing. They're tempted to drift away. So we get that here from the context in, in Hebrew. So remember chapter 2, verse 1. He says, therefore, we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. Chapter 3, uh, verse 6b, our passage this morning. And we are his house, if indeed we hold fast in our confidence and our boasting in our hope. So they tempted to let go. They tempted not to hold fast. Chapter 3, verse 7. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion on the day of testing in the wilderness. They were tempted. These Christians, these holy brothers and sisters who share in a heavenly calling, were nonetheless tempted to drift away. They were none, nonetheless tempted not to hold fast. They were tempted to harden their hearts. Chapter 3, verse 7, they were tempted to go astray in their hearts, to disobey God's command. I think the people that Hebrews is writing to, the readers, the original readers, would have fitted in well once again in that parable by Jesus of the sower. So remember that parable where uh, it's the parable of the seed and Jesus is the sower and the seed is the word of God and there are four kinds of soils. And, and remember the second kind of soil was a rocky ground and the seed fell, it sprang up, it grew, but there wasn't much soil so when the sun came out it scorched it. And um, it had no root and it withered, it died. And Jesus says, those are people who hear the word of God and immediately they receive it with joy, but there's no root. So they endure for a while, but when there's tribulation, when there's trouble, when there's persecution because of the word, they fall away. 
perhaps the second soil is a good example of the kind of people that the author of Hebrews was writing to. Here's a, here's a young Jewish Christian man, perhaps living in Rome, come to faith in Christ from Judaism, and uh, not finding life all that easy. There's persecution from his family. Um, he actually thought that uh, that he could have Judaism and Christianity. He could hang on to both, but he can't. The tension has become unbearable. So he's tempted to drift away. He's tempted to fall away. And the devil whispers in his ear and says, you don't need to be so fanatical, do you? I mean, what are your friends going to say at school? What are your uncles going to say? Now, we've all been there, haven't we? That excruciating pressure, the tension to conform, the fear of man, to go with the flow and ultimately to deny God, to deny Christ. Many years ago, I was involved in a church up north, um, I had oversight of the church up in Limpopo. It was a white church, and there were all kinds of problems and difficulties, and uh, we were trying to deal with them over the phone, over email. Eventually, I went up there to to meet with the congregation. They were they were actually angry with me, so we had a meeting. We had a members meeting in the church the one evening. I drove up. And um, they started asking me questions, which I had to respond to. And then someone piped up and said, what is the, what is the church's position on Freemasons? Now, I knew that that was an issue in the church, that there were members of Freemasonry in the church, some of the leaders. And I took a deep breath. And while I was taking the breath, someone said, be careful, there's a lot of us here. Uh, that wasn't very helpful. And it's the kind of context where you can't, you can't say, well, let's discuss, let's, um, let, let's start with Jesus. So it's not the kind of where you can say, well, let's do a study in Mark's gospel. You've actually got to answer the question. And um, so I had to be quite clear. I said, uh, they said, what is, the, what is the church's position on Freemasonry? And I said, well, the church's position on Freemasonry, talking about reach SA, is the same as the Orthodox Church has been over hundreds of years. And that is that you cannot be a Christian and a Freemason. Well, that, uh, that went down well, as you can imagine. And... Um, when everyone calmed down, I said there's a number of issues, and I'm not an expert, but I do have a problem with, with, uh, with an organization that operates in secret. Surely Christians don't work in secret. Surely we work in the light. But I said my main problem, actually, is that we don't worship the same God. The reading that I've done, the God of Freemasonry, is not the God of the Bible. 
God of Freemasonry is not Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And ultimately, you cannot be a Christian and a Freemason. Well, we had, we had chaos, as you can imagine. And um, it was pretty chaotic. Someone had to end the meeting without any further discussion or anything. At the end of the evening, no one greeted me, no one thanked me, no one shook my hand. But that is the truth. You can't, you can't have Jesus and somebody else. You can't have Jesus and angels. You can't have Jesus and Moses. You can't have Jesus and Freemasonry. You can't be a Christian or claim to be a Christian and worship some other god or idol. And that was the temptation of the readers of Hebrews. Remember that great song by Bob Dylan. I've quoted this to you before. I love Bob Dylan. Uh, my family don't think so much of him, but uh, I think he's wonderful. And uh, just by the way, I'm in good company because he did win a Nobel Prize for literature in 2016. So next time you criticize Bob Dylan with me, I'm going to ask you, when last did you win your Nobel Prize? Here is what Bob Dylan said, and he gets it right. It's a song called Gotta Serve Somebody. You may be an ambassador to England or France. You may like to gamble. You might like to dance. You may be the heavyweight champion of the world. You may be a socialite with a long string of pearls. But you're going to have to serve somebody. Yes, indeed. You're going to have to serve somebody. It may be the devil or it may be the Lord, but you're going to have to serve somebody. You may be a preacher with your spiritual pride. You may be a city councilman taking bribes on the side. You may be working in a barber shop. You may know how to cut hair. You may be somebody's mistress, maybe somebody's heir. Might like to wear cotton, might like to wear silk, might like to drink whiskey, might like to drink milk, might like to eat caviar, you might like to eat bread. You may be sleeping on the floor, sleeping in a king-size bed, but you're going to have to serve somebody. Yes, indeed, you're going to have to serve somebody. It may be the devil, or it may be the Lord, but you're going to have to serve somebody. All right, first principle, to whom is he writing? Second, to whom is he pointing? Let me read again from verse 1. Therefore, holy brothers... You who share in a heavenly calling, consider Jesus, the apostle and high priest of our confession, who was faithful to him who appointed him, just as Moses also was faithful in all God's house. For Jesus has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses, as much more glory as the builder of a house has more honor than the house itself. For every house is built by someone, but the builder of all things is God. Now Moses was faithful in all God's house as a servant to testify to the things that was, were to be spoken later. So the question is, to whom is the author pointing? And the quick answer, verse 1, it's quite obvious, to Jesus alone. And the key word there is the word alone. So, so some of his original readers were tempted to have Jesus and angels. We saw that in chapter 1 and chapter 2. Here in chapter 3, 
They're not tempted to have Jesus and angels, and they're not tempted to have Jesus and Freemasonry. No, they're tempted to have Jesus and Moses. You see, to the Jews in those days, there was none greater than Moses. Well, of course, he led them out of slavery as, as a nation-state out of Egypt. He led them through the Red Sea. He led them through the wilderness. He brought them the law. He brought them the Ten Commandments. He read, led them right up to the Promised Land. So to ancient Jews, Moses was far greater than all the other Old Testament prophets. To the Old Testament prophets, God has spoken in visions and dreams, but to Moses... He had spoken mouth to mouth. So Moses was ranked higher than all the other prophets. He was ranked higher than the angels. So William Barclay says, I quote, he says, To the Jew it would have been impossible to conceive that anyone ever stood closer to God than Moses did. And yet that is precisely what the writer of the Hebrews set out to prove. End of quote. Now, it's important to notice here that the author doesn't knock Moses. He doesn't diss Moses. Not at all. No, Moses was God's man, God's instrument. God had appointed Moses to lead the nation of Israel out of Egypt to the promised land. So indeed, verse 2, Moses was faithful in God's house. But the author says, verse 3, Jesus is more faithful. Jesus is more worthy. Why? Well, verse 5, notice there, Moses was faithful in God's house as a servant. Verse 6, but Jesus was faithful over God's house, not as a servant, but as a son. Verse 3, Moses was a servant in the house. He was part of the house. But Jesus is the builder of the house. And of course the builder is far bigger than the house itself. Now this morning we had a, we had a staff meeting, that's Thursday morning, uh, on uh, Zoom. And um, uh, David Kabedi had uh, sent round uh, a photograph of the leather work that he's been doing. And uh, he sent round this beautiful sling bag. Uh, I think it was was holding a laptop and picture of it, pictures of other leather work magnificent and i was i was i mean it was extraordinary because I had no idea that David was a leather craftsman making this beautiful stuff in fact i was i was I was kind of shocked because you know David and Kate come from Rusten, from Rustenburg i mean does anything good come from Rustenburg just just joking, guys, just joking. Now, of course, David is bigger than his leather crafts work. So, Jesus is bigger than Moses and the building, because he built the building. In fact, we told there, verse 5, Now, Moses was faithful in all God's house as a servant to testify to the things that were to be spoken later. So he was particularly faithful because he pointed to Jesus. He tested, notice there, he testified to the things that were to be spoken later. That later is Jesus. In fact, John 5, in John's Gospel, chapter 5, Jesus says to the Pharisees who practically worshipped Moses, 
He said, you've set your hope on Moses, good. For if you believed Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote about me. Just as an aside, when we talk about the Old Testament and the New Testament and the relationship between the two, we're not saying that the Old Testament is inferior to the New Testament. We are not saying that the Old Testament is replaced by the New Testament. No, we are saying that the Old Testament is promise and the New Testament is fulfillment. So Moses structured the sacrificial system. Moses gave order to the priesthood. Moses built the tabernacle, which then later led to the temple. Jesus is a fulfillment of that. Jesus is the ultimate sacrifice. Jesus is the final high priest. Jesus is our temple, our tabernacle. Again, verse 5, Moses was faithful. Why? Because he testified to the things that were to be spoken later, which is Jesus. But even more, notice verse 1, consider Jesus the apostle and high priest of our confession. It's the only place in the New Testament where Jesus is called an apostle. The word apostle means to be sent out, the sent out ones, like an ambassador. Sent out to speak on behalf of his country. So Jesus is God's apostle, sent out to speak on behalf of God. So we know from chapter 1 verse 2, that Jesus is the final word from God. There are no more words. No more words are needed. But not only is he the final apostle, the final word, but he's also the final high priest. And we remember from chapter 2, verse 17, the final high priest, Jesus, presents the final sacrifice, Jesus, as a final propitiation for our sins. The price is paid. The wrath is quenched. The job is done. Perfect. Jesus, the final word and the final work. By the way, you must never divorce those two. When you divorce those two, you will lose both. He's the final word, no more word is needed, and he's the final work, no more work is needed. If one wobbles, the other will wobble. They belong together. The final word, the final work. It's perfect. It's good to go. Now let me try and apply this to ourselves, because most of us are not prone to combine a worship of Jesus with angels, or to worship Jesus and Moses. Um, perhaps there is someone here listening who may be a Freemason. Well, you do need to work through the Bible very carefully, work through the Gospels carefully. Because you can only know God through the Lord Jesus Christ. And the only God that there is, is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So you actually can't be a Freemason and a Christian. That's a contradiction in terms. It's one or the other. You see, what we have here is a certain subtlety. The readers are not against Jesus. They're not opposed to Jesus. All they are saying, almost unconsciously, is Jesus is not enough. He's not sufficient. We need Jesus plus. Jesus plus angels. Jesus plus Moses. Jesus plus circumcision. And that has been a tendency within the church for ages, for generations. The idea that salvation is found in Jesus plus religion, or Jesus plus church attendance, Jesus plus baptism, Jesus plus tithing, Jesus plus fasting. 
I remember Frank Retief, uh, many of you will remember, told the story of going to see a man who was from the church who was dying, and he went to see him at home, and he was lying in bed, and Frank uh, shared the word of God with him, and uh, he said, before we before we pray, he said, my brother, if God were to ask you why he should let you into his heaven, what would you say? And the man very slowly leant across to the little table next to his bed and he drew out the, drew out the drawer and he put his hand and he took his old Bible. He brought out his Bible and he opened the Bible and he took out this old crumpled baptismal certificate. You see, that's, that's Jesus plus church, Jesus plus religion, Jesus plus works. My dear friends, it's never Jesus plus anything. Whenever you add something to Jesus, you are actually saying that Jesus is not sufficient. He's not good enough. So your identity as a Christian, back to verse 1, is not found in angels or Moses. It's not found in religion. Your identity is not found in these things. It's not found in another person, be it Moses or anyone else. No, your identity is found in Christ. Christ plus nothing. There may be some listening to, listening, watching the service this morning. You may be single. Perhaps you've never married. Perhaps you divorced. Perhaps you have lost your, your husband, your wife. And you, perhaps you think, perhaps you think that if only I had a, had a boyfriend, a girlfriend, if only I had a husband or wife, I'd be fulfilled. My dear friends, good and right as those things may be, our identity is not found in those things. Ultimate safety and security is not found in those things. We are not defined by those things or by the lack of those things. Now, our identity is in Christ. We are defined by being in Christ. Let me read to you from Becky, um, Becky Pippert. She's a great author and, and a great evangelist, brilliant evangelist, brilliant author. Her first book that she wrote was called Out of the Salt Shaker. And uh, this is a book called Hope Has Its Reason. She's just published last, last month in May a brand new book called uh, Stay Salt. And uh, if, you want to, if you want to be more effective in sharing your faith, then uh, go and buy Becky Pippet. She is quite brilliant. And she's a brilliant evangelist. She tells a wonderful story in this book, which I want to read to you. And um, let me read our quote. My friend was suffering through the trauma of having been jilted by her lover. She thought she had found the love of all loves, but it failed. She told me it didn't fail because I took my relationship with him too lightly. Rather, I asked too much of it. I thought that once I found the right person to love, everything else would fall into place. And for a while it did. I thought love had finally conquered my lifelong problems with anger and distrust. Eventually, however, my dark side reared its head again. I hadn't changed as much as I had hoped when my old problems emerged, he began to back away. 
So I started clinging more, demanding more, all my fears and anxieties that he wouldn't love me, that he'd reject me for someone else, kept edging into the relationship. I banked all my need for love in him and told him so. He couldn't bear the weight of it. I longed for him to solve all my problems, meet all my needs. I wanted him to give ultimate meaning and purpose to my life so I wouldn't be left alone. He told me no one could sustain the pressure of being a god for someone else. I feel like I'm made to run on the fuel of love, but the minute I get in a relationship, I start to make him my center, my god, and the relationship crumbles. So I'm alone again, wondering why my immense wish to be loved can't be gratified. Why do I carry such a hunger when it can never be met? It all feels like a sick joke. And Becky answers her and says, your need for love is not a sick joke. You're meant to run on the fuel of love. But human love can never sustain that pressure. You see, any God substitute, be it angels or Moses or a person, will always fail you, will always disappoint. They can't bear the weight. No person can meet your every need. It's impossible. And for that person, frankly, it's exhausting. No created thing can give ultimate identity or purpose or love or meaning. Only the, only the creator can do that. So, in fact, the readers of Hebrews are on the brink, the original readers are on the brink of a worship disorder. They're starting to worship the wrong things. Only God in Christ and Christ alone can give us what we most need. Identity, purpose, love meaning well let me close with with the last question number one to whom is he writing number two to whom is is he pointing number three so what must we do well have a look at your your passage the answer is at the top and tail of our passage verse six he says hold fast to your confidence in jesus don't let go don't slacken your grip no, hold tight, hold fast. Verse 1, he says, consider Jesus. Now, in the original NIV, verse 1 says, fix your thoughts on Jesus. So it's the idea of focusing, concentrating, applying your mind onto Jesus. So in Eastern meditations or Oprah meditations, we are told to empty our minds. And to repeat some mantra, the author of Hebrews says, no, don't empty your mind. Fill your mind. Fill your mind with Jesus. Fix your thoughts, your focus, your concentration on Jesus, who he is and what he's done. So that you don't drift away. So that you don't fall away. So that you don't harden your heart and disobey. Perhaps as we've been working through this passage this morning, you have felt... Perhaps you felt he's talking to me. I feel as if I'm drifting away. I feel as if I'm falling away. In fact, I'm tempted to stop trusting in God. Things are rough. I'm not coping all that well in this prison context. I'm tempted to stop believing in God. Stop obeying God. Let me say to you, you're actually in very good company. Because you won't believe it. That's exactly what Jesus felt. Have a look at chapter 2, verse 18. 
Remember that in the original, there's no chapter divisions. There's no headings. Chapter 2, verse 18 is part of chapter 3, 1 to 6. It's part of the same argument. And um, it was actually last night, Jean drew my attention to, to verse 18. She said to me, what does verse 18 mean? I said, I don't know. She said, you preached on it. I said, well, it's such, it was such a long passage, I didn't get to the verse. And so I had a look at chapter 2, verse 18. Let me read that to you. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. You get the same thing there in chapter 4. Just turn over to chapter 4 and verse 15. For we do not have a high priest, talking about Jesus, who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. So when you take this concept of temptation in the context of this passage, of course Jesus was tempted like we are with pride and envy and hatred and lust and whatever, but he didn't sin. More than that, surely Jesus was tempted to fall away. Jesus was tempted to turn away from God's purpose. He was tempted to disobey God, especially when he considered the cross. So Jesus knows exactly the temptations, the struggles we have, and those struggles that are listed here in chapter 2 and 3 and 4. Remember in the night, in, in the garden in Gethsemane, his soul was was deeply, deeply troubled. He prayed, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me. Was that not a temptation to disobey the purposes that the Father, Son, and Spirit had planned before the beginning of time? Remove this cup from me. Yet not what I will, but what you will. So Jesus suffers the ultimate temptation of disobeying his Father. He was tempted in every respect that we are. But thankfully he resisted. He held fast. Not my will, but your will. So the author of Hebrews says, consider Jesus, fix your eyes on Jesus, who was also tempted to turn away. But he held the line so that we could be saved. What a wonderful Savior. He even knows what it's like to be tempted to backslide. He even knows what it's like to be tempted to disobey God. So my dear sister, my dear brother, don't give up, don't give in, hold fast. Turn to this Jesus who understands better than you and I can ever imagine what you may be going through. Turn to him. 
fix your eyes on him. And he will get you through. Let's pray. Let's spend a few moments of quiet as we reflect on God's word. You may want to tell God where you are. Father, we thank you so, so much that when we turn to you with our doubts, our confusion, our struggles, when we turn to you, tempted not to turn to you, that you are there, that you know, that you understand, that your son has been tempted in every possible way that we have and understands infinitely more than we do the struggles of living in this broken world. So will you help us to fix our eyes on Jesus? Will you help us to hold fast to the author, the perfecter, the pioneer of our faith who's been through it all and who is now with you seated in glory. Lord, send your Holy Spirit upon us afresh. Empower us, refresh us, fill us with your Spirit, that we may once again serve you this week. And we pray this for Christ's sake. Amen. Well, thank you so much for persevering with me next week just to mention we're picking up chapter 3 from verse 7 onwards can I also just invite you my email will be on the screen martin m at christchurchmidran.co.za if you have any questions any comments uh, that you'd like to send to me please feel free to do that I'm so delighted and happy to be able to make contact with people who have questions. You may not even be a Christian and you have, may have questions about the Christian faith. Well, why don't you, why don't you email me and uh, I'll be more than happy to get back to you.